things as if they were light. Richard Baxter writes, Of all the preaching in the world, I hate the preaching which tends to make the hearers laugh or to move their minds with tickling levity and affect them as stage plays used to instead of affecting them with a holy reverence for the name of God. Earnest preaching aims to please God rather than men. The minister speaks in the conviction that God is his witness. All masks are stripped away. All flattery is abhorred. Here is Baxter again. Oh, sirs, how plainly, how closely, how earnestly should we deliver a message of such moment as ours. In the name of God, brethren, labor to awaken your own hearts before you go into the pulpit, that you may be fit to awaken the hearts of sinners. Remember, they must be awakened or damned, and a sleepy preacher will hardly awaken drowsy sinners. Speak to your people as to men that must be awakened either here or in hell. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the talk that has gone before. In this message now, we pray that you would come and that you would work blessing and fruit for each of the brothers and sisters who are here among us. Assist me in this work, assist speaker and hearer alike, and bring a blessing for your people and for our churches. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message or talk, I don't want to call it a sermon because I'm not preaching from the Bible. I'm giving a talk or a message or an address titled, Speak as the Oracles of God, Martin Lloyd-Jones and the Task of Preaching. I have two primary goals by this talk. The first is to convince you to take three to four months of your life and to commit yourself to prayerfully reading Ian Murray's two-part biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. If all I accomplish by this address is to convince a dozen of you to do that, I will consider this time well spent. Ian Murray's two-part biography is the best biography I've ever read. Uh, it also, incidentally, happens to be the best book on preaching I've ever read. And I have to insist at this point, uh, don't settle for the one-volume biography that Murray came out with several years later. That was a concession he never should have made. Be a man, take the two volumes, 1,200 pages or whatever they are, and prayerfully read through those two volumes. And I'll say also, if you are here and you're not a preacher, you don't aspire to be a preacher, uh, I would still encourage you to read the biographies. We have members of our church who have no uh, plans to ever step into a pulpit, but we're greatly edified by those two volumes. Uh, but I'll also encourage you to consider buying these books for your pastor, especially the one who does most of the preaching, and then you can make him feel really bad about not reading it because you bought them for him after all. You make sure that he reads them. But I have a second goal by this talk, and that is to provoke in you a higher view of the work of preaching through an examination of the life and ministry of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and particularly an examination of his view of preaching. I especially hope to provoke a higher view of preaching in those of you who are presently engaged week by week in the work of preaching, as well as those who aspire to engage in the work of preaching to some degree or another. But if you are not a preacher, or have no be a preacher, or hopes to be a preacher, I'm still speaking to you. Increasingly, I am coming to appreciate that nearly as important as the preacher's own associations concerning the work of preaching are the hearer's associations concerning the work of preaching. In other words, preacher and hearer alike must understand and appreciate the singular and unique activity that preaching is in the purposes of God. Preacher and hearer alike must cultivate a high view of the work of preaching. I tell our people at Emmanuel all the time, unashamedly, 
at the most important hour of their weeks is that hour at which they come under the Spirit-anointed preaching of the Word of God every Sunday. I believe that, and Martin Lloyd-Jones certainly believes that. If we wish to recover a high view of preaching in the church today, I can hardly think of a figure in church history better suited to speak to us than Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. So I'd like to give a brief sketch of his biography, not going to cover a great deal, but a brief sketch of his biography, and then I want to present to you what I regard as four foundational pillars, or four uh, aspects, elements, shaping the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones. So let's consider his biography. His dates are 1899 to 1981. 1899 to 1981. Lloyd-Jones is born in Cardiff in Wales on December 20th, 1899. He is born into a family that was nominally religious. His father, Henry, is a humble grocer. In 1914, the family is forced to move from Wales to London due to a series of poor business decisions on Henry's part. Uh, there in the heart of London, only a few blocks away from Westminster Chapel, which if you've ever been to London, is only a few blocks away from Westminster Abbey, where they crown kings and queens. Uh, it's a few blocks away, this dairy business that Henry Lloyd-Jones supervises, just a few blocks away from Westminster Chapel, where Lloyd-Jones would later thunder in the pulpit for three decades. Uh, in fact, uh, young Martin Lloyd-Jones, as a boy, helped his father in the dairy business, would get up at five in the morning before going to school, and he would deliver milk across the street from Westminster Chapel. Uh, so it's remarkable to think of this boy and this imposing chapel he looked at almost every day and the providence of God in positioning him there as the preacher some 25 years later. After Lloyd-Jones completes grammar school, he attends St. Bartholomew's Hospital as a medical student and quickly shows promise as one of the brightest medical students in the country. In 1921, he begins work as assistant to the royal physician, Sir Thomas Horter. Lloyd-Jones eventually obtains his MD from London University and becomes a member of the Royal College of Physicians. Uh, by the mid-1920s, there is probably no young doctor in Britain with a brighter future than D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He is decorated with awards and high honors for his academic and medical prowess. He enjoys the enthusiastic approval of London's high society and the approbation of the social elites in abundance. There is simply no ceiling to what this young man, Lloyd-Jones, can achieve in the professional arena. However, as he continues to excel in the medical world, he begins slowly to develop a certain dissatisfaction with his work as a doctor and begins to reflect more and more on the state of his soul and the concerns of eternity. What ultimately leads to Lloyd-Jones' conversion is a deeper awareness of man in his sinful state, man in his desperate need of grace and redemption, and his conversion is progressive, taking place between 1924 and 1925, and it's shaped by the very same theological themes, doctrinal themes that would later mark his preaching ministry, God in His holiness, man in sin and utter hopelessness, Christ as God's gracious provision of salvation for sinners. These doctrines, these truths, these realities begin to loom larger and larger in the mind and heart and experience of Martin Lloyd-Jones until, in fact, he turns to Christ in faith. Almost simultaneously, as Lloyd-Jones comes to faith in Christ, he begins to feel an inner compulsion to preach. And he begins to do so on a trial basis. Eventually, he begins to wonder if he should leave off medicine altogether and throw himself entirely into the work of preaching. It's not at all an easy decision for Lloyd-Jones. In fact, for about a year and a half, he agonizes over whether or not he should leave medicine for the pulpit. In fact, between 1925 and 1926, the already slender Martin Lloyd-Jones 
who I think is all of about five foot eight, loses 20 pounds as he agonizes over whether or not to leave medicine, to leave all that he had known up to that point, and to enter the ministry of preaching. Ultimately, Lloyd-Jones decides for the ministry, and this decision stems from two simultaneous feelings within Lloyd-Jones, which intensify the more he ponders the question. The first is his growing disillusionment with life among the social elite. He begins to view a future in the upper echelons of society as an influential doctor, as something of a hollow ambition for Lloyd-Jones. Murray writes this, what he saw of life at the top killed any ambition to get there. And Lloyd-Jones himself said this, I saw the vanity of all human greatness. Here was a tragedy, a man without any hope at all. A second factor that ultimately leads to Lloyd-Jones leaving medicine I've already mentioned. It is an all-consuming inner compulsion to preach the Word of God. You get the sense it just totally overtakes and overwhelms Lloyd-Jones. He even uses that language of giving in or surrendering to what he understands to be the Spirit's work in setting him apart for the work of preaching. By June 1926, the struggle is over. Lloyd-Jones is convinced God Himself has laid hold of him and has set him apart for this work. And that inner sense is confirmed by an external call from a church in Wales, which I'll speak of in a moment. The final seal of this change, of course, for Lloyd-Jones from medicine to the pulpit comes in the autumn of 1926 when Lloyd-Jones is offered the position of assistant professor of medicine at Bart's Hospital. Uh, Murray comments, it was a position which would have led right to the top. And Lloyd-Jones himself would later comment, this did not shake me for a second. I had already decided for the ministry. Okay, now I want to accelerate the biography a bit. Lloyd-Jones returns to Wales now. He was born in Wales, moves to London. Now he's moving back from London to Wales. He moves there along with his new wife, Bethan, in 1927. And there he receives a call to minister at Sandfields in Aberavon, A-B-E-R-A-V-O-N. From 1927 to 1939, he's in Wales in Aberavon. For over a decade, Lloyd-Jones gives himself to preaching and pastoral care with almost extreme zeal and devotion. His ministry involves the regular exposition of the Word week by week, evangelism among the members of the community, a steady regimen of pastoral care visits, and oversight of the church's prayer meetings, Bible classes, and other connected ministries. In addition to these many responsibilities, he often preaches abroad during the week. His 12 years in Aberavon represent an unbroken period of intense labor for the Lord, and it proves to be a season marked by extraordinary fruitfulness. Though the ministry at Aberavon begins with slow and steady growth, after a few years, Lloyd-Jones experiences what can only be referred to as revival in the truest sense of that word. And it's at this point I want to put a plug in for chapter 10 of volume 1 on the revival that Lloyd-Jones witnesses at Aberavon. It will stir you, brothers, like nothing else. And you'll just find your heart groaning and praying, Lord, do it again. May I live to see a work like this in my own city, my own community. As the Lloyd-Jones preaching ministry begins to have its effect on the people of the congregation and upon the wider community, remarkable things begin to take place. Literally hundreds upon hundreds of people come to faith under His ministry in Aberavon, most of them poor and working class people. And God pours out His Spirit in extraordinary measure and owns Lloyd-Jones preaching, and people are getting converted left, right, front, and center. Now, this is an address primarily on the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones, so I want to read a few descriptions of his preaching at this point in his life, and then I'll do the same when we come to London and his preaching at Westminster Chapel. There are many features of Lloyd-Jones' preaching that stand out, and Murray identifies them all in his book, but he gives special attention to one, 
that comes up again and again and again in the two volumes. He says this, it was almost universally accepted that the note of authority was the most arresting feature of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' preaching. Observers of his ministry at this day wrote, the secret of his power is the note of certainty that pervades his preaching. Someone else says this, there is evidently no diminution in the extraordinary drawing power of Dr. Lloyd-Jones due largely to his intense earnestness and the definite message which he so confidently proclaims. Another says this, a dominant personality, intensity of conviction, clarity of thought and directness of speech with an entire absence of striving after oratorical effect. These things portray this modern Puritan. One reporter writes, one can hear in his preaching the rumble of the distant thunder of Judgment Day. Another writes, he relied solely on something beyond this seen world. That something became a great reality, nay, the only reality for us all, at least for the time being. We believed in it, somehow because we could not help ourselves. His own faith was so compelling and domineering as to be irresistible." End quote. Of course, Lloyd-Jones himself could preach with such authority precisely because he had no authority of his own, but ascended the pulpit to preach upon the authority of God's Word, and thus he dare not preach with anything less than certainty and authority, the kind of certainty and authority becoming of those who proclaim divine doctrines and eternal verities. Lloyd-Jones himself says at this time, quote, the chief need of Wales is great theological and doctrinal preaching which will emphasize the sovereignty of God, the ugliness of sin, the uncertainty of life, the judgment of eternity, the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the all-sufficiency of His saving work for us on the cross, the resurrection, and the blessed hope we have. Ian Murray quotes an article written by an atheist, South Wales correspondent in the News Chronicle titled, A Physician of Souls. This correspondent writes, quote, the doctor's sermons penetrate the innermost secrets of the heart. I doubt whether there is any other preacher in Wales today who could extract such dramatic power out of a text with two short words, but God, as this dynamic evangelist. There was man and there was God with this tremendous but always between them. As preaching, it was mesmeric in its appeal. As a message of hope to a world that has tried everything but Christianity, it was electrical. An awe-inspiring new force has arisen in the life of Wales. Well, in 1939, that is the eve of World War II, Lloyd-Jones is called to Westminster Chapel in the heart of London. There he would minister for 30 years and become the most powerful and prolific preacher, not only in London, but in all of Britain. There's a lot more that could be said about his ministry at Westminster Chapel. I've said practically nothing. But again, I'm just going to highlight a few descriptions of his preaching. Uh, raise your hand if you know who J.I. Packer is. Hopefully you've read some of his books. I can't recommend them highly enough. J.I. Packer said of his first encounter with Lloyd-Jones preaching the following. I had never heard such preaching. It came to me with the force of electric shock, bringing me to more of a sense of God than any other man. All that I know about preaching, I mean, consider who J.I. Packer is. He says this, all that I know about preaching, I can honestly say, indeed have often said, I learned from the doctor by example. Later in his life, J.I. Packer said this, I have never heard another preacher with so much of God about him. 
His approach is habitually Isaianic, referring to the prophet Isaiah. Having surveyed man's pretensions, his fancied greatness and adequacy, moral, religious, cultural, intellectual, he punctures them, humbling man and exposing his weakness, futility, and sin in order then to exalt God as the only Savior. The thrust of Lloyd-Jones' sermons is always to show man small and God great. Application has been going throughout the sermon. In one sense, it has all been application. He will have searched us, analyzed us to ourselves, diagnosed us in the self-despair, shown up sin and weakness and failure in vivid forms. Now, in conclusion, he points us to the God of all grace. With intense compassion, he urges us to cast ourselves on the mercy of God and Christ, and his last words are likely to be an assurance about the life and glory we shall find when we do. Thus, the preacher slips out of the picture and leaves us with the God whom he would have us know. A student from Jamaica said this, it was as if I lost all count of time and space. The eternal truth that I hungered for so deeply was being revealed, and I was caught up body, mind, and spirit in the sublime experience of receiving, finding, understanding, knowing. Martin Lloyd-Jones was only an instrument. What I experienced was the power of the Word and a deep, intensive, quickening work of the Holy Spirit. One more quote from the biography, brothers and sisters. Ian Murray writes of driving Lloyd-Jones to a preaching engagement in March of 1966 on the eve of a vitally important election. Lloyd-Jones preached from Acts 24 in the account of Paul before Felix, and this is what Murray writes about that occasion. The congregation which had come to the parish church that evening were as affected as everyone else at that date by the excitement over the general election which was to be held the following week. But as Paul's message to Felix was preached, all else suddenly seemed trivial. The silent and packed congregation, whose feet rested on ancient flagstones covering the dead of other centuries, were not being addressed as voters, but as immortals whose chief interest belonged to another world. Listen to this. The truth that all is transitory save the Word of God swept aside every other thought and seemed to hold all captive to its power. Well, there's so much more that could be said about the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He retires from Westminster Chapel in 1968. He lives another 13 years, and in that time, he preaches abroad. He writes most of his books, his book, Preaching and Preachers, uh, his book on spiritual depression, his long commentaries, which are really sermons converted to commentaries on Ephesians and Romans and other such books. But now in the time remaining, brothers and sisters, I want to give us four foundational pillars or four components that gave the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones its peculiar shape and life. So four foundational pillars. I'll give you all four, and then we'll consider each in turn. The preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones was shaped by, number one, a peculiar view of God. Number two, a particular view of the Bible. Number three, a particular view of the preacher. And number four, a particular view of of preaching. Consider with me first a particular view of God. What is the chief end of preaching? Asks Dr. Lloyd-Jones. He says this, I like to think it is this. It is to give men and women a sense of God and His presence. Martin Lloyd-Jones' view of preaching was built upon his view of God. 
And he believed the higher one's view of God himself, the higher one's view of preaching. Because as he said, the chief end of preaching is to give men and women a sense of God in his presence. If that's the goal, then the higher one's view of God, the higher one's view of the work and the ends of preaching, which is to bring God to the people through the proclamation of his word. Thus, Lloyd-Jones preached a high view of God. God as he is revealed in his word. God in all his glory. God in His majesty, God in His holiness, God as He is revealed high and lifted up, God in His omnipotence and omniscience, God in His wrath and judgment against sin, God in His love and mercy for sinners in Christ, and God the rock and refuge of His people. High views of God, if you've ever listened to the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones, high views of God permeate His preaching. And these altogether high views of God animate and elevate His sense an understanding of the task and work of preaching. But it was not just a high view of the doctrine of God. It was not just correct teaching on the person of God Himself. More than that, Lloyd-Jones believed preaching was meant to instill in people's minds and hearts something of the very presence and power of God among them. Preaching was meant to bring people to a point of living experience of God Himself. He believed that preaching was meant to precipitate an encounter with the living God, actual communion with Him in the event of preaching. Preaching was more than teaching doctrine. It was to precipitate an experience, an encounter, a sense of the living, vital, forceful presence of God Himself. Preaching is not only meant to tell people about who God is, but to make them to feel that He is a real force in the world that He is the ultimate being, the ultimate reality, and that He is near and He is present in the gathering of His people under the Spirit-anointed preaching of His Word. It is to bring the presence of God to bear down upon the whole assembly, producing a sense of gravity and seriousness and awe in the presence of the living God. In other words, preaching ushers forth, in a way, the presence of God among the people. Preaching by design brings God to the people through the Word, by the presence and power of God the Holy Spirit. Lloyd-Jones believed that whenever the Spirit of God owns a man's preaching, when He gives to him a real anointing and imparts to him true unction, God Himself comes to the people in a very real and vibrant and experiential way, and the people can sense it and know it at once. They know, they can sense, they can feel God is present among them, and they experience His person, and they have real dealings with Him, and they come to deeper knowledge of Him through preaching. True preaching is meant to bring God to the people and to cause His presence and His person to bear down on the gathering such that it is felt and perceived and known. Lloyd-Jones believed it was always to be His aim as the preacher by the Spirit's help to create within men and women the highest possible views of who God is as well as the most cogent and authentic experiences of His divine presence. But I think we can also say under this first point that this particular view of God and this particular view of preaching necessitated a particular view of man also. God to Lloyd-Jones was in every way holy and perfect and awesome. Man was finite, sinful, and altogether answerable. To this God, and if you were in his audience, if you were among his congregation, he wanted you to feel answerable to this God who came on the wings of preaching. 
The divide between God and man could not have been more severe in the preaching of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and thus man's condition before God could not have been more desperate, and yet, in Christ, his hope of salvation could not have been more bright. A high view of God and a low view of man set the stage for the kind of gospel preaching that thundered from Westminster Chapel for 30 years. So, brother pastors, by way of application... I remind you, your job as the preacher is to bring to your people the highest possible view of God that you can give them. And the preaching event is designed to bring to people a sense of the being of God and of His power and of His presence. And so, men, I'll just ask you, how ought this to affect your bearing in the pulpit? How should it affect your manner? How should it affect your tone and your vocabulary and the language you choose to describe God and man? I don't know what your perception is, but I find that there are so many preachers today who seem to advertise by their bearing, their tone, their vocabulary, that they have only the shallowest notions of who God is. In all these things, we brothers should communicate we really know and esteem God and want others, our audience, our congregation, the people of God, and lost people among us to know and esteem God as well. How should these realities affect our preparation to stand and to preach the Word? How should it bear upon the overall sense and effect you're aiming to create by your preaching through the Spirit's help? The chief end of preaching, Lloyd-Jones says, is to give men and women a real sense of God and His presence. Is that what you did yesterday, brother pastor, when you stood to preach the Word and address the congregation? I urge you, I encourage you, through the witness of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he calls us to set the bar higher than the standard of preaching we so often find today. Higher than the all-too-common, casual, careless, and carefree style of chit-chat that spills out of the mouths of the gurus and comedians and life coaches posing as preachers. Your task, brother pastor, by the help and power of the Holy Ghost is to bring God to man through your preaching. And Lloyd-Jones urges us to make this our end and aim. That's a particular view of God. Number two, consider with me a particular view of the Bible. Particular view of the Bible. Martin Lloyd-Jones believed the Bible to be God's self-disclosure of His being his nature, his plans, and his purposes. He believed the Bible was the inspired and authoritative revelation of God to man, and thus it was to be preached as such. Listen, the content of the message determined the manner in which the message was to be delivered. The content of the message determined, regulated, the manner in which the message was to be delivered. It was this view of the Bible that contributed more than anything to the unmistakable note of authority in Lloyd-Jones' preaching. Lloyd-Jones frankly believed that he had more authority than any man in the room, and that he had the right given him by God to be in total command of the assembly. And this command and this authority, listen brothers, did not have its origin in Lloyd-Jones' personality or his or his charisma, or his personal magnetism, the authority wasn't based entirely on his office and the content of his message, which was the very lively Word of God. He understood that if the Scriptures are the content for preaching, and they are, then there is no other way to preach than with authority. And if the Scriptures are the content for preaching, then there is no other way to preach than with dignity. And if the Scriptures are the content for preaching, then there is no other way to preach than with a sense of gravity 
and seriousness and reverence and earnestness and power. It is intolerable to think that a message from the infallible and authoritative self-disclosure of the living God can be delivered in a manner that is casual and careless and conversational and chipper and chatty. Brothers, I encourage you to think about this in your own preaching, in your assessment of young preachers in your churches. I think you know what I'm talking about. Guys who could not broadcast more so that they have not the foggiest understanding of the message that they preach. By everything they put on display in their manner and in their vocabulary and in their jokey, chit-chatty, conversational style, that kind of chummy, let's buddy up and be friends and have a conversation. That approach to preaching would have been deplorable to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I would submit deplorable to the Apostle Paul and the other New Testament writers. Brothers, sisters, if I am reporting to you the score of last night's basketball game, I am completely free to do so in a manner that is trite and flippant and glib because the content of my message is trite and flippant and glib and has no eternal significance at all. But when declaring eternal verities from the Word of Almighty God, I am not free to do so in a manner that is trite and flippant and glib but am rather constrained to convey my message in a way that accords with the gravity and sobriety and glory and majesty of the content of my message, which is the word of the living God. Martin Lloyd-Jones understood this. His high view of the Bible necessitated a high view of preaching because preaching is the proclamation of the Word of God. And the higher one's view of the Word of God, the higher one's view of preaching. The content of the message, brothers, determines the manner in which the message is delivered and the seriousness with which the preacher approaches his message. If you want a verse for this, I give you 1 Peter 4.11. Let him who speaks speak as the oracles of God. It's not a casual errand we're on, brothers. We're speaking the oracles of God to the people of God with the hope and aim of producing an effect by His Spirit's help. Let Him who speaks speak in a manner, speak with words, speak in such a way that it is evident He is speaking the very oracles of God. A particular view of God, a particular view of the Bible, now consider with me thirdly a particular view of the preacher. So here's how Lloyd-Jones would conceive of the situation. Here is God, here is the Word, here is the preacher. Who is this preacher? What is his task? What is he doing there? And Lloyd-Jones answers this, quote, the primary task of the Christian minister is the preaching of the Word of God. So this assignment to preach the Word of God is his task. Okay, so what implications does that assignment have for the nature of the preacher? Who is he? What is he doing when he stands to preach? What role is he playing there? And Lloyd-Jones' answer is this, the preacher appears as an ambassador, as a herald, as a messenger sent from God to proclaim his message to the people of God. So Lloyd-Jones says this in Preaching and Preachers. The very essence of the position of the ambassador is that he is a man who has been sent to speak for somebody else. He is the speaker for his government, or his president, or his king, or his emperor, or whatever form of government his country may have. He is not a man who speculates and gives his own views and ideas. He is the bearer of a message. He is commissioned to do this. He is sent to do this, and this is what he must do. What is the message? 
It is that such as I have. It is limited to that. This is what I have received. This is what I possess, such as I have. I have received this. It has been handed to me. I do not bring my own thoughts and ideas. I do not just tell people what I think or surmise. I deliver to them what has been given to me. I have been given it, and I give it to them. I am a vehicle. I am a channel. I am an instrument. I am a representative. In another place, Lloyd-Jones says, the preacher is not looking for something to say. He is a witness who testifies. Brother pastor, brother preacher, you go into your study and you're looking for something to say and you're consulting your books on anecdotes and jokes and you're looking at the headlines. That's, that's bad news. Lloyd-Jones is going to throw the yellow flag. You, brother pastor, are a witness who testifies. And that should be evident in the content of your preaching and in the manner in which you preach. So, brother, you must be convinced if you are a preacher at all, then you are an ambassador, a messenger, a herald who actually has been spoken to by God in His Word and by His Spirit and has been commissioned for this work, enlisted in this service, and sent with something to say. And if a preacher is to execute his role as an ambassador for God to man with any seriousness whatsoever, he can only do so with a sense of dignified earnestness. Again, Lloyd-Jones says this, if the preacher does not suggest a sense of urgency, that he is there between God and men, speaking between time and eternity, he has no business to be in a pulpit. There is no place for calm, cool, scientific detachment in these matters. That may possibly be all right in a philosopher, but it is unthinkable in a preacher because of the whole situation in which he is involved. That passage reminds me of 2 Corinthians 2.17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So let me say this by way of application under this third point. If as a preacher you are an ambassador, there are two things that must be said. Number one, brother pastor, you are constrained. You are constrained. You are not at liberty to say whatever you would like. You are not at liberty in the work of preaching to offer up your opinions and suggestions. You must preach the Bible. You must give them the Word. You speak as you have been told to speak. You must give them what you have been given. You must herald the message which has been entrusted to your care. You are constrained, brother. Give them the Bible or sit down and shut your mouth. If your business is preaching, then you are an ambassador of Almighty God, and you dare not speak less than or more than His message. You are constrained. But secondly, if as a preacher you are an ambassador, you are not only constrained, but you are empowered. You are given authority by virtue of your office and your errand. If the king has sent you to speak His word, then you may demand the attention and the obedience of your hearers. You dare not speak with anything less than authority. Authority, again, that does not arise from within you, but outside of you that is given to you, that is conferred upon you by the virtue of your office and your assignment. Listen again to Lloyd-Jones. Quote, I would emphasize that the preacher must possess, possess a sense of authority and control over the congregation and the proceedings. The preacher should never be apologetic. He should never give the impression that he is speaking by their leave, as it were. He should not be 
tentatively putting forward certain suggestions and ideas. That is not to be his attitude at all. He is a man who is there to declare certain things. He is a man under commission and under authority. He is an ambassador, and he should be aware of his authority. He should always know that he comes to the congregation as a sent messenger. Obviously, this is not a matter of self-confidence. Brothers, let me emphasize that. This is not a matter of self-confidence. That is always deplorable in a preacher, Lloyd-Jones says. But that does not mean that you are apologetic. It means that you are aware of the solemnity and the seriousness and the importance of what you are doing. You have no self-confidence, but you are a man under authority and you have authority. And this should be evident and obvious. I put this very high on the list and say that far from being controlled by the congregation, the preacher is in charge and is in control of the congregation. Now, it is possible that a dozen or two dozen or three dozen of you may object to that notion of preaching. You may say, he is, he is overshooting the mark. I wonder, do you think that's too much? Do you think he's exaggerating? I would say in light of certain scriptures, I don't think so. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete teaching and patience. Titus 2.15, Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Isn't that an interesting idea? How would someone speak and teach and preach so as not to be disregarded? That's the word that we're given in Titus 2.15. You have authority, brother. Authority given you by the King of the universe, the risen Christ whom you represent. I urge you, represent Him. And represent Him with the authority of an ambassador. You speak for the Lord. Therefore, act like it. Adopt a tone, a bearing, and a demeanor commensurate with the authority that is yours given you by God and proclaim the word with such authority that you cannot be ignored and more than that and far more importantly so that the one you represent may not be ignored. You are not there as the preacher to make helpful suggestions to people for how they might live if they felt so inclined. You are not a life coach passing along tips for successful living. If you're a preacher, a true preacher, ordained by the risen Christ and a spirit-filled congregation, you are a herald of the world to come. You're a prophet of the Most High God and a preacher of the kingdom. I urge you, brothers, preach with authority given you by the Lord Himself. And to be clear, lest anyone mistake me, I am not talking about shouting and waving your hands around. That's not authority. That's not unction. I mean, someone anointed by God who has been given the gift of utterance and unction by God the Holy Spirit may shout, as I am kind of doing now, and may wave his hands around, but you don't have to reach a certain decibel level in order to bring to your people a sense that you speak as a representative of the living God. You can do this if you're John Piper. You can do it if you're Sinclair Ferguson. Both men speak as those anointed by God's Spirit. I'm not talking about being a heavy-handed jerk. I'm not talking about being abusive or oppressive or dictatorial or tyrannical. The Lord knows in our day and age we don't need any more preachers like that. I'm talking about speaking on behalf of the living God and representing Him in a way that reflects the authority and dignity and gravity of the message that is to be proclaimed. Brothers, I would just encourage you, study the prophets. 
Study New Testament preaching. Study the preaching of our Lord, and I don't think you'll go wrong in this. Study preaching in the Word of God, and you will have a right course set. All right, the fourth and final point. We've seen that Lloyd-Jones' preaching was shaped by a particular view of God, a particular view of the Bible, a particular view of the preacher. Now, fourthly and finally, a particular view of preaching itself. Listen to Lloyd-Jones again. What then is preaching? What do I mean by preaching? Let us look at it like this. There is a man standing in a pulpit and speaking, and there are people sitting in pews or seats and listening. What is happening? What is this? Have you ever had this experience in preaching? I've had this in the middle of sermons where I see, you know, 200 or so sets of eyeballs looking at me, and my mouth is moving, and I think, what is going on here? What is this? All these people got up, got dressed early today, and they brought their kids, and they, they came here, and something called preaching is happening. What is this? That's what Lloyd-Jones is asking. Why does that man stand in the pulpit? What is his object? Why does the church put him there to do this? Why do these other people come to listen? What is this man meant to be doing? What is he trying to do? What ought he to be doing? These, it seems to me, are the great questions. What is this man doing there? You get the setup here. Okay, this is what he says. Any true definition of preaching must say that that man is there to deliver the message of God, a message from God to those people. If you prefer the language of Paul, he is an ambassador for Christ. That is what he is. He has been sent. He is a commissioned person, and he is standing there as the mouthpiece of God and of Christ to address these people. In other words, he is not merely to talk to them. He is not there to entertain them. He is there, and I want to emphasize this, to do something to those people. He is there to produce results of various kinds. He is there to influence people. He is there to deal with the whole person. And his preaching is meant to affect the whole person at the very center of life. Preaching should make such a difference to a man who is listening that he is never the same again. Preaching, in other words, is a transaction between the preacher and the listener. It does something for the soul of man. It deals with him in a vital and radical manner. This is what preaching is meant to do. It addresses us in such a manner as to bring us under judgment, and it deals with us in such a way that we feel our whole life is involved, and we go out saying, I can never go back and live just as I did before. This has done something to me. It has made a difference to me. I am a different person as the result of listening to this, end quote. What is preaching then in Lloyd-Jones' view? Preaching is certainly heralding, it is proclamation, it is announcement. It can never be conversational. It can never be dialogical. That approach would violate the very nature of what preaching is. If the preacher is a herald and an ambassador, then he is to announce the truth and proclaim it with clarity and authority and to bring men and women under it. And the preaching is meant to affect something powerful, and Lloyd-Jones would say even dramatic, in the life of the man or woman who comes under such preaching. Martin Lloyd-Jones believed that preaching of this sort is meant to influence the heart and will and emotions of the individual hearer in a confrontational kind of way, such that an actual experience with God is precipitated. In preaching, brothers, Lloyd-Jones would tell us there is a power to be exerted. There is a force that is brought 
to bear down upon the congregation. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 4 called it the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, he said, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. True preaching brings with it a force and a power that is, in the best sense of the word, exerted upon the people. Brothers, preaching is not just saying true things about the Lord. When preaching is owned by God the Holy Spirit, a power dynamic is introduced. I might sound too mystical to some at this point, but I don't think I sound more mystical than the Apostle Paul. There is a force, an energy, a power that comes through in preaching. My personal opinion is that this is precisely the difference between preaching and teaching. There is a power that bears down upon the assembly under the Spirit-anointed preaching of the man of God. And here's how Lloyd-Jones characterizes the effect on people when they come under true preaching like this. Brothers, I'm almost finished. He says this about the congregation who experiences such preaching. What about the people? What about them? They sense it at once. They can tell the difference immediately. They are gripped. They become serious. They are convicted. They are moved. They are humbled. Some are convicted of sin. Others are lifted up to the heavens. Anything may happen to any one of them. They know at once that something quite unusual and exceptional is happening. And as a result, they begin to delight in the things of God and they want more and more teaching. They are like the people in the book of Acts of the apostles. They want to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. I wonder if you've ever experienced preaching like that. If you have seen something parading as preaching that is not true preaching, and you have seen this kind of preaching, I trust you know the difference. I don't object to J.I. Packer's language. It came to me with the force of an electric shock. There's a power and a force about it. Brothers, sisters, does anyone believe in this kind of preaching anymore? Are we going to recover this preaching in our day? The Lloyd-Jones-esque approach to preaching with authority, with power, with unction. And will you, brother pastor, be a standard bearer for this view of preaching, which I believe is the biblical view of preaching in our day and age, because it is what we need. It is true Spirit-anointed preaching that God Himself owns to change and affect people at the deepest heart level, and it's what He uses and owns to advance the cause of His church. We can so often set such low expectations for preaching. I hear this sometimes, and I think I know what's meant by it, but I get worried about it. You know, like, brother, just, just get up there, brother. And if you fumble, and if you bumble, and if, if you just say something true about Jesus, just give him, give him a word this morning, and if it's inarticulate, and if it's, if it's just, you can just get a little bit out about Jesus, well then, praise God, that's wonderful, you've preached. I'm not trying to be ugly, but a six-year-old with any modicum of a Sunday school education can do that. I'm assuming, brother pastor, if you have been called by the Lord Jesus Christ and given to Him as a gift to the church, and if you have resting upon you the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and if you've been given the gift of unction, you are bringing a lot more than just true statements about who Jesus is, true lessons from the Bible. We hear this, though, don't we? Just, 
hey, pastor, get up there, and if it's just a bunt single, that's fine. That's great. Just go up there and give your little bunt single. And believe me, I'm a busy pastor, okay? And I've had those weeks where there's two funerals, and then there's a member in crisis, and all you got is about four to six hours to prepare a sermon. And I bless God that he sometimes uses the bunt single. But you know as well as I do, no one can make a career in the major leagues on bunt singles. Games are won by home runs and RBIs. And the kingdom of God is advanced by preachers who are given utterance by God the Holy Ghost. Men who are anointed by God to advance the cause of His church and to stir up the people of God and to bring true spirit-anointed preaching to the people. Brothers, we should aim for this kind of preaching. And we should commit that we will never enter a pulpit unless we hope to do so as one anointed by God and as one appointed to speak for Him unto the people. I need to conclude, so I'm going to give Lloyd-Jones the last word. This is his encouragement, his charge to us. Do you expect anything to happen when you get up to preach in a pulpit? Or do you just say to yourself, well, I have prepared my address, and I'm going to give them this address. Some of them will appreciate it, and some of them will not. Are you expecting it to be the turning point in someone's life? Are you expecting anyone to have a climactic experience? That is what preaching is meant to do. That is what you find in the Bible and in the subsequent history of the church. I'm just pause here. He's not talking about revivalism. He's not talking about emotional manipulation. He's talking about the people of God encountering the person of God in preaching. So he says this, this is what you find in the Bible and in the history of the church. Brothers, seek this power, expect this power, yearn for this power, and when the power comes, yield to Him. Do not resist. I am certain, as I have said several times before, that nothing but a return of this power of the Spirit on our preaching is going to avail us anything. This makes true preaching, and it is the greatest need of all today, never more so, nothing can substitute for this. This unction, this anointing is the supreme thing. Seek it until you have it. Be content with nothing less. Go on until you can say, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give to some of the brothers among us here who have truly been called of you, recognized by the church, tasked for the work of preaching, to come into the experience of this anointing, to know something in the preaching event of the demonstration of the Spirit and power. Only this will avail anything, your Spirit owning the work of your people. And so please come and help us in our ministries, and please come and help us in our churches. May we experience and see something of you working in true resurrection power among the lives of our people through preaching. May you raise the dead. May you give light where there was only darkness. Please, Father, help us. We are needy. We are weary pastors. Excite in us higher views of you, higher views of your word, higher views of what you have called us to as preachers, higher views of preaching itself.
And may you give us all the energy and all the grace, all the zeal that is needed to carry on this work in a way that is faithful and fruitful. Please, Father, we ask that whatever it is that you must supply to make us true preachers and true churches, please supply it. Don't remove the candlestick from our churches, how much we deserve that. But please, Lord, continue to supply by the initiatives of your Spirit all that is needed to minister before the face of God in a way that would give us no cause to be ashamed on that great and final day. Help us. Bless us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.